Section 13 of Here and Hereafter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Kibbe. Here and Hereafter by Barry Payne. The Futility of William Penarden. Let the Great Book of the World Be Your Principal Study. Chesterfield. General Penarden, C.B., married late in life, and had one son, who was intended by General Penarden to follow his father's profession, to be V.C. and D.S.O., and to be a bright and shining light. As the intentions of destiny do not precisely agree with the intentions of General Penarden, it is perhaps just as well that the old man died when William his son was a boy of six. He was thus saved some disappointment. But even in those brief years he was not saved all disappointment. He made grimly a list of the different things of which the child was frightened, and it was a very long list. Many, of course, were things of which any child is frightened. Many others came into a doubtful category. The fear would have been excusable perhaps in a girl. There was left a residue which was all wrong and quite inexplicable. The general, though disappointed, did not despair. He quoted instances of brave men who had had a timid childhood. His optimistic program was that his son should have it all knocked out of him by the paternal hand, by the severe discipline of a public school, and by experience of dangers. Familiarity of them would breed contempt, and all would yet be well. On the day before his death from apoplexy, he imagined to himself dispatches in which his son's name figured brilliantly. The general had married a woman much younger than himself. She was beautiful and she was bored. She came of a decaying race. The brilliant vices and wild extravagances of her eighteenth-century forefathers had ended with the usual and prosaic sequel of tainted blood and fallen fortunes. Possibly there were few things that bored this tired London woman more than her son William. She remembered to talk about him a little to her friends. She had the best possible care taken of him by the best possible servants. She gave him expensive presents on the days appointed, but she did not want to be with him very much. When she was with him, she either spoiled him or bullied him, and more often she bullied him. At the age of twelve, William, at a preparatory school which he hated, was bidden to write an essay on the subject of war. He wrote childishly, and with many faults of punctuation and spelling, to the effect that war was the wickedest thing in the world, and that a soldier's profession was the most inhuman and abominable. By chance the essay came into his mother's way, and she laughed till she cried over it. He was not a pretty boy, and he could never be admirable, but there seemed to be some chance that he might, at least, be quaint. At the age of fourteen he made to his mother a profound observation, to wit, that though for many long years past he himself had been getting older and older, she had never changed one little bit. For this she kissed him. He might have found her in a mood when she would have struck him for it. It was quite clear by this time that he was not to be a soldier. The weakness of his physique supported the firmness of his wishes in this respect. He could have never passed the doctor. At his public school, which he hated even more than the preparatory school, medical certificates freed him to some extent from compulsory games. He was a muff at all games, and he was no great scholar. Yet he was less unpopular at school than might have been expected. He had no pretensions whatsoever, and he was very obliging. He would do anything for anybody. He had the fatal gift of imagination, and a few eccentricities that amused other boys. Boys treat with good humor that with which they are amused. There was, for instance, a certain shortcut, a footpath across some fields, in common use by the boys, which William Penarden resolutely refused to take. He gave no reasons, but he said that he could not take that path. So he went all the way round, and was frequently late, and from that came trouble. 
but he remained obstinate it was one of the things that pleased the other boys mad as a hatter they would say and quote his dislike of the field path and proof it was during his first term at cambridge that he heard from his mother that she intended to marry again she had not aged at all except to the most careful observer and to her own maid and even her own maid did not know everything it was perhaps rather remarkable that she had not remarried before but she had always preferred the admiration of the many to the devotion of the one and by the terms of the late general's will her remarriage made her son much richer and herself much poorer it may have occurred to her that this prolonged struggle with age could not be carried on indefinitely as for the money she was marrying a wealthy baronet and knew how to take care of herself it was true that he was a sportsman who hated london and that she would have to live for the most part in the country but the things which are supposed to amuse had bored her so long that she had begun to wonder if she could not be amused by the things that are supposed to bore then there was always the resource of foreign travel she knew a doctor who could generally be counted upon to order her to the place to which she wished to go william was not much surprised by the news and he wrote the kindest of letters to his mother he was really an extremely kind young man he had already met many characters of doubtful probity none of them had ever asked him to lend money he had always anticipated them by the offer of a loan on the occasions when his mother got to hear of this she had been unfailingly very very mad with him at present william was quite ready to accept the situation but the situation was not quite ready to accept william he was not much of a sportsman and his new father said candidly that he could see nothing in the boy lady coyne formerly mrs penarden became suddenly serious and flagrantly moral on the subject of william's career she spelt career with a capital letter in her letters to him she pronounced it in italics for her talk it was true that it was not necessary for him to make an income but no good ever came of idleness she had by the way made an exhaustive trial of it herself for the last twenty years and was therefore in a position to speak she suggested politics and the diplomatic service he had no taste for either above all she emphasized the bad effect which a prolonged home life had upon a young man before he took his degree it was a past degree he had learned to interpret this correctly and spent very little of his vacations at home he had made friends who found him amiable and liked him to visit them occasionally sometimes he travelled when he was at home he did not see very much of his mother there were always other visitors staying in the house sir charles coyne was pessimistic on the subject of william he can play the piano a bit he said and he can drive the car and there is not one other solitary damned thing that he can do i wish to goodness he would get married william did not get married but he kept out of the way which after all was almost as good further to please his mother he said that he proposed ultimately to become a candidate for parliament in the meantime he would like to devote two or three years to serious preparation lady coyne observed that he could cram up all that a member needed to know in two or three weeks but did not remonstrate further william took a riverside cottage in a small flat in london he went from one to the other as the mood took him and as a rule made the journey on his motor-car he liked driving the car but it was rather a fearful pleasure he was perhaps the most cautious driver extant and the secret amusement of his hireling chauffeur when william went from his cottage to his flat in town he made the chauffeur take the wheel when they approached london william did not like driving through the thick traffic at any time and did not like driving by night at all one saturday night in june doling the chauffeur received an unexpected visit from a long absent brother the visitor arrived just at the moment when he and his master were about to start for london in the car timidity and amiability struggled in the breast of william penarden and amiability won i shan't want you doling he said i can manage it all right by myself mr doling was sure that it was very kind of him it was a bright moonlight night with deep bothering shadows william started slowly he already felt nervous 
How would it be if he gave up the London idea altogether? He could telegraph in the morning to the friend whom he was to have met. He turned off from the London road, where a circuit of two or three miles would bring him back to the cottage again. There was a dark stretch of road here, trees on either side almost meeting overhead. Beyond, the road lay white and open. William went into his third speed as he emerged from the darkness. At that moment, a black figure shot out from the hedge into the road right across the way of the car. In a moment or two, William had jammed on the brakes, and the car stood still with the engines racing. Had he touched the man or not? It seemed to him to be a long while before he could force himself to look round and see. When he did so, he saw the black figure lying motionless on the road in the bright moonlight. "'Are you hurt?' William called hoarsely. All was silent. With great care, William turned his car round in the road and crawled up alongside. He could see now that it was the figure of a man, raggedly dressed, absolutely motionless. The hat had fallen off, and the moonlight made the thick white hair brilliant. "'Are you hurt?' William asked again. He stared hard to see if he could detect the slightest movement. There was none. He listened intently, stopping his engines. The whole night seemed to him full of the silence of the dead. He knew perfectly well what he ought to do, but sheer panic had hold of him. He touched the switch and his engine started again. For once in his life he drove recklessly, and he drove to London. There would be ample evidence that he had been intending to go to London when he started, and there would be no reason why he should ever have taken his car on the road where the dead body would be found. No one had seen him. No suspicion could attach to him. Long before he reached London, the drunken tramp, whom William supposed that he had killed, sat up. The car had never touched him. He had fallen in the road and had been slightly stunned. He rubbed his aged and disreputable head and grumbled to himself that this was what came of those sanguinary motors. Then he walked home, kicked his wife, and slept the sleep of the just. The price that William Penarden was to pay for his cowardice was heavy enough. He was never to know that he had not even touched the man. Coincidence was already busy to convince him that he had killed that man, and to keep the terror of it fresh in his mind for the remaining two years of his life. He came back from London by train on Sunday afternoon. He told Doling that he was ill, and that he did not feel up to driving the car. Doling could fetch it back from the garage on Monday. Doling looked remarkably serious. He did not know if his master had heard of it, but a terrible thing had happened not three miles away from them. A man had been found dead in the road on Saturday night, and it was supposed that he had been knocked down by a motor car. It was not the London road. It was just where... William Penarden stopped him abruptly and savagely. It was all true, then, and not the dream that he had hoped to find it. Yes, it was true enough, but it was another man and another car. The hoary reprobate who had been dazzled by the headlights of Penarden's car and had stunned himself in his fall was now no worse than he usually was after his usual Saturday night. For many weeks Penarden carefully avoided the newspapers. He was afraid of what he would find there. After that came a feeling of security, but never a moment's peace. That brilliant white hair in the moonlight wove itself into the fabric of his dreams. That black figure lurched ever before his car, till Penarden had a nervous breakdown and gave up motoring. When he got a little better, the chief question in his mind was how long he could stand it, how long it would be before his mind gave way and in his ravings he let loose his secret. Morose. Nervous, ill, he saw no one. For a long time he traveled. Change of scene was an opiate. It put the day of madness a little further off. The poor man did his best. The political career was now definitely given up. Lady Coyne spoke with a sigh to the more intimate part of her circle of her son's incurable idleness. On his return to England he had yielded to archaeology. It was a subject which had always interested him, and he looked to it now to take his mind off. He journeyed from one cathedral to another, asking erudite questions, making rubbings of brasses, and always haunted. 
in the course of his wanderings in quest of the quaint he stopped at a provincial town the normal serenity of which was in a state of temporary interruption owing to some reliability trials of motors being held in its neighbourhood Penarden drove to the hotel which the railway porter impressed upon him was the only one likely to have accommodation for such as himself and asked for a room the clerk announced mournfully that only number fifty four was unoccupied and well before offering it to the gentleman he had better see the manager that official saw the class of man he was dealing with and regretted deeply that he had no other room but the reliability trials were on and his resources were strained to the uttermost it was all that he had to offer and it was on the top floor of an annex the decoration of which was not yet completed the painter's stepladders and planks still lingered in the corridor the view from the window was obstructed by a mean building scarcely eight feet away true the mean building had been condemned and was to come down and the decorations would be finished and the workmen would be out in a fortnight but in the meantime well in the meantime william penarden did not care much in what room he failed to get to sleep and he accepted the bedroom that was offered he even managed to sleep in it until in the early hours he was aroused by the waiter in dress trousers and the jacket of his pajamas who told him that the building opposite was well alight and that they hoped that the annex would not catch the wind being favourable to them but that mr penarden had better get down at once and bring his travelling bag with him right said penarden and sent the waiter to wake up the others then he dressed quickly and looked out of his window down to the alley beneath the fire brigade had not yet arrived two policemen were doing their best to keep the narrow alley clear an ugly old woman in violent hysterics was screaming they're up there and a man was trying to quiet her then penarden gave a great sigh of relief for here was the chance of expiation he took the longest of the planks that the painters had left and ran it through his own window so that it dropped on a window ledge of the burning house opposite as a rule he had no head at all for heights but now he felt perfectly unperturbed he did not attempt to walk along the plank for he was not giving a circus exhibition but he began to work himself along it slowly in a sitting position taking great care not to jolt the end of it off the window ledge opposite an authoritative voice below shouted him to go back he went on he reached the window opposite and flung it open a volley of black and stifling smoke poured forth and he nearly fell then he climbed into the room and the last that was seen of him was that he stood at the window taking off his coat to put it over his head before he could go further he was not seen again alive and as his mother lady coin observed it was all so absolutely futile the people in the house had already got out and he had let himself be guided by the hysterical raving of some chance woman in the crowd so he annoyed her almost as much in death as he had done in life but it is possible that his death horrible though it was was for him of an extreme happiness end of section thirteen